Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Welcome so back to Hide and Practice. Hide or practice, I mean. Hide or practice. Practice or hide. Welcome to episode three, part two. We are joined by the illustrious Tim Schneider, art business editor at the Artnet and writer of our favorite art column, The Gray Market. So what have you heard and what have you read this week? <laughs> what is, what's happened in Taipei? <laughs> Tell us about Taipei. Well, this, this doesn't have anything to do with what I've, what I've read or watched this week, to be clear. Um, but... So my, my boss, Andrew Goldstein, is the editor-in-chief at Artnet News. He's been to Taipei Dongdae twice. He was, he was there for the opening year last year, and then he was there, I think, again this year. And I believe that he's the only Western journalist who has showed up there. Wow. Really? I'm so yeah. surprised. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I'm both surprised and not surprised because it's, I've never been there. I understand it is quite a trek mm. to manage to make it there. So I'm sure that that is a part of the story. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I think it plays into something that I'm always sensitive to and wish I could do more about and I'm trying to do more about in the future when it comes to the understanding of the art world and the art market in Asia, which is that it tends to just focus really, really specifically on Hong Kong and mainland China. I mean, I don't know if especially with the art, with the, with the art world, but certainly with a part of the art world is that you, you kind of just get these, these like a nucleus of events at a certain time in a certain place. And then all of a sudden, once there's a beachhead established as like, Oh, the third week in March every year, that's when the art world goes to Hong Kong. Maybe that's also when we should do some really important fashion stuff. And more and more, I think that you just see it. Like this is a big story about, or, or a big part of the reason that Art Basel Miami Beach has become the highly, uh, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's Party become, to it's end become, the year, basically. Yeah. It's, I mean, if I can, I don't know if you guys are allowed to, I don't feel like I didn't hear you curse during any of your first two episodes, but like, it's a fucking mess. <laughs> It is. Hey, it's I don't know. Marley <laughs> seems to be there having a good time every year. I see that. Like she's, you know, doing all these parties and I always feel like that's, you're ending the year with a bang. But what I actually, when you were saying that, you know, the art world has this calendar and obviously like everything has now been postponed for the foreseeable, like next four months, which technically, you know, like in the Western world, the art world would shut down anyway for this summer and then Asia continues on because you know Asia has no summer because you know like what would be um so what do you think is actually going to happen in terms of what have you actually heard or read in like your intel of what happens when things do switch back on in September because I mean there are so many fairs what about the auctions like what's what's going to happen yeah that's that's not surprising. That's the question that everybody has been trying to cope with, at least everybody in, in the art industry that I've talked to. Mm-hmm. And the real answer is that nobody really knows. I mean, if there's one thing that I've learned throughout the course of this thing, and just when it comes to projections generally, it's that the, like anybody who tells you for sure that they know is what gonna, what's going to happen, they, they don't trust them because they, they generally don't have any idea. And, and I say this as somebody who has to make predictions as a part of my own job. So like, but I'm very conscious of that. Uh, but yeah, it's the, the shift that you're describing, Erica, where the art world effectively came to this understanding that nothing was going to happen during the summer, basically. And we were just going to push all the fairs to September. And that really happened end of March, early April, like by that point, everyone had kind of just been like, okay, well, the summer is shot. So we're going to aim for September and hope that everything works out. Okay. And 
like I'm, I'm going back to the idea of being skeptical of anybody who's making predictions, but I'm already on record as saying, I don't think that there are going to be any art fairs for the rest of this year. I just don't, I, I don't realistically, I don't see how it's going to happen because what you see, well, let me, let me put it this way. There's what the art world might want, but there's also just larger laws in place. And in a lot of these cities where they're hoping to hold fairs, like there are still orders in place and people can't gather in groups that are larger than like 10 or at most 50. And if that's in place in your city, there's no way in hell you're holding Art Basel in September. Right. And there's that kind of 50-50 of like when you're dealing with the clientele of these fairs of like the, you know, the high net worth individuals, you've got the, I don't want anything to happen to me. People who are going to look back at TFAF that got canceled early or closed early and had probably had peers who got sick or knew someone who knew a peer who got sick, which is already too close. And then, but you also have that 50% of I'm bored in the house and I'm in the house board and they want to go out, but then you're confronted again with, can we gather? Can we do this safely? We have insurance people who are not going to let us do that. Cause that, then it gets down to like the nitty gritty, which is always interesting to me is that, you know, the government didn't tell TFAF to close. They had to do it for their own protection. And, you know, it's not like someone, even though there are the rules saying like, we can't have 10, more than 10 people, like the MBA, Nobody told the MBA they had to do it. They did a risk assessment and they said, we cannot risk this because if people get sick, we're liable. So even yeah. though you have the people who might want to do it, or maybe, you know, Berlin or let's, you know what, the best probably is Dallas. So like say Dallas is like, yeah, no, we can have this art fair in October because we're Texas and we're Texas strong. And, uh, but are people, you know, are the people who, even though the city's saying you can do it, the people who run the art fair are still talking with their lawyers, are still talking with their insurance providers, and are still talking with the vendors and all of those things. And who's going to take that risk? Because also dealing with high net worth individuals, they're not the least litigious group of people when you have, you know. Right. I'm going to ask. And they also, oh, go ahead, Eric. No, I'm, so I'm going to ask because to follow that thought. So we're talking about etiquettes. Okay. So what do you think that the etiquettes could be if something does happen in real life? Say you can only have 10 people, which like seriously doesn't even work because just the people in the gallery itself is just like, what are you going to do? Logistically, that just doesn't make sense. But God, those 10 people it, who got in though, they would be so thrilled about it. it. And they would buy yeah. everything. Francois <laughs> um, Hamel's like, yes, I'll be the first person to come in. Well, I mean, for, for an industry that is so much based around the idea of stratifying the VIPs from anyone else, this is almost, there is a version of this that is like a wet dream. It's like, mm-hmm. we can only allow 10 people in the gallery at any given time. And of course, the first people, those first 10 people who get in the door are going to feel so good about themselves. Mm-hmm. And the next 10 are already going to be looking at them being like, shit, why are they getting ahead of me? Yeah. What do I need to do? What is Anyways, Doc? So the art world. That is so yeah. the art world. Um, but in terms of the edit, okay. So what about the etiquettes for online? What, what should our online behaviors be like as we're all trying to navigate with the plethora of online viewing rooms? This just seems to be about like four every day that I read and I'm just like, wow. Okay. Like this is everyone's on this bandwagon. So how should we all act? Yeah, it's, well, I guess, I guess the question is, are you asking about the etiquette for viewers slash buyers or from the etiquette of the people who were actually putting on those online viewing rooms or other events, online events of any kind? All of the above. Okay. (laughs) Well, let's, let's start with this because it's something that you already nodded to in the way that you set up that question, which is that there has just been this avalanche of announcements of online viewing rooms. I mean, I wrote in a column a couple of weeks ago that I've been, I've been notified of more online viewing rooms opening in the past three weeks than I had been in the prior three years. Like it's just, and it makes sense why, of course, if 
if the physical location, physical place where you sell your goods effectively is shut down, you have no other choice. You have to go online. And so there is just this mad dash to all of a sudden start up a, an online viewing room, online sales room, whatever you want to call it. The problem is that, again, as you're referencing, there is just such a volume of this stuff that has come on so quickly that I just feel like everyone is drowning in it. It's, it's unbelievable. The idea that anyone is going to be able to sort through all of this stuff that they're being emailed every day and actually come away with anything of value is I think really, really a tough proposition. And that's why I think that there's, there's almost this fallacy out there that a lot of galleries or art fairs in some cases, I mean, freeze virtual freeze is going to open this week. Art Basel Hong Kong did its first online viewing room, whatever it was at this point a month and a half ago. In March, which seems like, yeah, so, oh God, like so long ago. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And I, I think that there's this, there's something of a fallacy there. Maybe it's less so with affairs because they still, they're, they're still kind of one week only events for all intents and purposes. But um, there's a fallacy that I think that just because you start one of these online viewing rooms that people are automatically going to show up. And I, I don't think anything could be further from the truth. Some of them don't make it easy because some of the times yeah. I'm sure you've seen it where it's like, it gives you the link, you have to go and then you have to enter in your email address to sign up for their email list, which is where I got the link originally. And then they send me the link to go into the thing. And sometimes I have to do a password and I'm just like, I just, that's four steps that are difficult. You know, when I've got 50 other requests to come look at their online viewing room, that's not great. I can do it because it's my job and <laughs> I'm not going to not do it. I'll grumble about it, but it's not convenient. It's not, it's not, there's no ease of this conversation that's happening digitally, but like, do not, I can't ask my clients to do it. Uh, yeah. Right. And then I mean, the ones who no, can buy it, they don't, they don't want to, they literally, like, I'm hired to keep them from having to do that and asking people I don't know. It just, it's, it becomes cumbersome. Oh, you know, absolutely. And, and those four steps that you described are just to actually get into the viewing room mm -hmm. in the first place. If you actually want to inquire about any of the artworks that are being seen there, then you're introducing other steps because I mean, for anybody who hasn't actually been through this experience, it's not as if you can click through and all of a sudden it's just a buy button. Right. And it's not like traditional punching your credit card details. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so what you end up having to do is usually hit a button that says inquire or something to that effect. And you have to write an email to the gallery. Which might then, pop up a different email browser than what you're traditionally using on your computer mm -hmm. out of your control. Right. And then you get through that, you actually send it. Then there's no indication of how long it's going to take for someone on the other end to get back to you. It could be, if you're lucky, it'll be the same day, maybe in a couple of hours, something like that. Um, but it might not be for a day or so. And by that point, you're, you're just kind of digging back in your memory banks. You get a random email from a sales associate at Gallery X. And they're like, oh, yeah, you inquired about this. I'm like, wait, what pain was I? I even asking about? Right. What? When was that? It's, it's just, it's not... When it comes to tech, I mean, one of the words that you hear all the time is frictionless. Everybody's concerned about friction in the process. And the online viewing room experience, for the most part, is just so full of friction that it's almost surprising that, I don't know, you don't come out with something actually on fire. It, it's just... I, I don't know. It, it's, it's not a pleasant experience. It's not. And it's interesting because Eric and I have talked about it and I've seen, it's not that sales aren't happening. Sales are absolutely happening and people are going through, but when you see names like Barbara Kruger and George Kondo, those people, those pieces were going to go, those were going to sell via JPEG already. You have yeah. the clients, you know where they're going to go. And it's, I'm not mad that those pieces are selling. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm happy that people are buying and that people, you know, transactions are being made, but it's, 
I'm really curious about the levels below the established blue chip because it is hard to see a piece not know much about the artist or like I can get the artist and then inquire and then I don't get information back and if I don't have a relationship already with that gallery then it's difficult to you know because if I if I know Susie Q at ABC Gallery. I can be like, hey, Love I saw work. your. I, isn't she great? She's, she's so oh good. Communication is growing, obviously. She's <laughs> just. She's a delight to work with. It's a pleasure, really, to buy from her. But so when Susie Q gets back to me efficiently with a PDF of everything that I like, here's this is what we have available that piece sold, but this is what's other things that are going on, and this is a little bit about the artist and their CV. Fantastic, because that's what would happen at an art fair or at a gallery if I walked in and said, I like this work. I have a client. Can you send me what's going on? But with the online things, it gets to be a little limited and specific. And I feel like you lose that kind of magic of discovery that you get when you're in person or when you're dealing with a person face to face and they can kind of get a vibe and they're like, oh, you like this. You might also like that. And it's like you almost lose that like, a good salesperson can sell you and that's how yeah and you know for sure and it's just it's harder it's not that, that can't be done but it's a right. lot a lot harder to do it when the whole transaction the whole negotiation the whole conversation has to happen remotely as you're saying if you were just in an art fair booth and they probably every good gallery has a effectively a storeroom there in the booth that they brought extra stuff either by the same artist, slightly different series or more of the same series that they're already showing or other works that you could easily skip to in some ways from, Oh, if you're, as you're saying, if you're interested in this, we also have this other artist here. I have this great work on paper in the back. Let me literally grab it for you in 10 seconds, come back with it. You can look at it. We can have a conversation about it, et cetera, et cetera. And having to try to do all that stuff remotely is just really, really hard. Which is interesting because at an art fair or at a gallery, sometimes the things that they're pulling up is an iPad with digital images. Right, right. So the fact okay. that that can't translate is fine. So the sociologist in me is going to ask <laughs> this question. <laughs> yes, Not the one. maker, but the sociologist. So firstly, who is this like? system even designed for because it doesn't seem like it's designed really for the gallery it's not really designed for the user so there's clearly some sort of a ux issue there whatever that i like is beyond me however this is a bit of a devil's advocate question which is not everyone when they go to a fair and go into the booth would have and i'm going to use this term courage to go and speak to the gallerist. The truth, right? We've all sure, seen sure. this. Like I know, I know as a fact as somebody who, who goes to the VIP previews, I don't speak to the gallerist because they're going to look at me and be like, why are you talking to me? You're who not you? even worth my time. Who are you? Yeah. Like li- right. literally like get out of my face because you're not a high net worth individual. It's like, great, awesome. You are correct. Um, (laughs) I'm not, but it doesn't mean that I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but I'm not a high net worth individual. There is the, you may not have the courage to go and speak to somebody, which I think that potentially in this scenario of being able to just reach out via even like the 500 steps that you guys have listed do you think that potentially it widens the barriers in terms of access for those who are not able or not willing to or comfortable enough to go and speak to somebody? I think that it probably makes the ask much easier, as you're suggesting. I don't necessarily think that it makes the answer any better. In fact, there are ways in which I think it makes it harder. I, I'll just speak to, so I worked in the gallery world for eight years, all told. And we were, we, like everybody else had an artsy account and an artnet account. And anytime we got an inquiry from either one of those places on the works that we were showing, the immediate question was, okay, well, who the hell is this person? And at that point, all you really have is an email address and whatever they tell you 
in the email, which may not be much of anything because who the hell knows? Um, I mean, there aren't a ton of people who are eager to divulge really extensive biographical details about themselves when they're just emailing a gallery to try to find out if the painting that you have up is even available. Oh, so you're saying that people don't, when they write the email, they're just, they're not saying, hi, I'm a high net worth individual. <laughs> I earn like 50 grand a month. So you should sell to me. So you're suggesting that that's not the case. I, that's, that's generally not the case. I mean, what's interesting is that you do get, you do get something that's on that side in some cases where you'll have people who will say, oh, I have a private foundation in Jakarta or someplace that the average American dealer at least is probably not going to be familiar with. And it may be legit. It's possible. But you just end up in this question where you have to try to basically do internet detective work to try to figure out if this person Sleuthing. knows what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And, and I don't think that that's really helpful to anyone. Whereas it's, it's certainly if you're having that interaction in person, there's still vetting going on, but the vetting can happen quicker and it, it, there can almost be more incentive to do it. Like if somebody shows up and you're like, I don't know who this person is, but you see that they're wearing like a Hublot watch. Mm -hmm. You can just immediately be like, okay, well, they're certainly not a total fraud. And if you just saw them walking around the aisles earlier and they were like hobnobbing with people who are collectors that you do know, you'd be like, okay, that person might be worth my time. And then when they actually show up, like, yeah, that, that whole process can happen faster. Otherwise, I don't know. I mean, it's anybody who has ever had the, the pleasure of trying to go on a date with somebody that you met on Tinder or Hinge or whatever, it's like the same process mm -hmm. for somebody who's trying to carry out a remote art transaction. You're like, okay, I hear what you're saying. I'm into it. I think. Yeah. How Everything sure am I that you're really this person that you're telling me? Yeah, because you don't know what's the catfish potential. And yeah, it's funny, too, because it's also like, the, what's the catfish potential? Because do you know if that Hublot's real? It depends on how good a watch spotter you are. Man. Exactly. My watch, my watching is, my watch watching is, is low, but my, my Cartier spotting is really good i can i can pick out go. a nice a nice piece of jewelry but the it is funny about that but then that goes back to again like who does the system serve and it is kind of that reinforcing of the stratification of the elite vips of uh, that's who it serves it makes people totally. feel exclusive it makes people if you have to ask then you can't afford it if you you know if i have to explain to you who i am then I don't know if I want to work for you because like, don't you know who I am? Um, and no. <laughs> join me too. <laughs> Are you not just exactly. another human being? I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. And, um, and so it's interesting because it does reinforce that, but then also it's, it's funny because then it becomes that catch 22 of the art world kind of bemoaning of like fighting over the same 200 collectors. How do you get new collectors? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, you have to actually start by not making it so difficult. <laughs> right. No, 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 no. hundred percent. But I think that this, this gets back to, I mean, Eric, I know that you, you said that you wanted to address that question from the, the sociologist side of you, but I think that this is really a point where the UX and the sociology really line up where as we've all now been talking about so much of the, the kind of backbone of the art market is this, process of distinguishing between who's a worthy buyer and who's not, right? I mean, this is something that people who are on the outside of it rightly get really frustrated with. But the way that you, I think that one of the disturbing things to a lot of people in the arts about the whole online viewing room avalanche has been that when you really start looking at these things, there isn't really much that differentiates art from any other thing that you could possibly buy online. Like if you're scrolling through a gallery's online viewing room, it is not fundamentally different in most cases. I agree. If you're scrolling through any retailer looking at jeans or sneakers or 
whatever else. And so I think that what ends up happening is that the, the galleries and the art fairs and sellers basically say, okay, we have to do something to try to make this feel more special, more privileged. We got to make people work for it. We want to have some kind of vetting process in place. And so they design these barriers, but the barriers are just frustrating to most people. And they're much more, I don't know, maybe because as you suggested, Erica, the, the, the propensity for somebody who might not otherwise ask to ask online versus what they would on purse. Maybe that actually makes it clearer because then you're like, Oh God, I didn't realize it was going to be like, this is terrible. I don't want to deal with this. That's true. I wonder if on the, uh, cause I'm not on the gallery side anymore. I'm curious to see if like some of these like little hurdles are um, in from the seller side, from the gallery side, if they're seeing it as like, this is what it would be like, we're making you jump these things the same way you would if you were to come into our booth. Like I'm clocking your watch. I'm clocking your conversation. I'm clocking your knowledge. And then I'm going to decide if this is someone and then I can send you a preview that doesn't have prices on, or I'm going to send you a limited preview that has prices, but not like the really good stuff. Um, And again, I think that's where that like, I mean, art buying and art viewing and art world is such a social in-person you know, it relies on so much charm and so much salesmanship and so much bravado and, you know, theater, for lack of a better word. It's storytelling. It's storytelling, exactly. And it's hard to get that. And I think that that a lot of those hiccups, even in the good ones, it becomes prohibitive, but not in the same way that it's prohibitive always. And I think that shift is difficult for me personally because I'm already I'm so trained for the last 15 years of this that I've like these are my normal hurdles and the normal things that I can do and I can put on the fancy earrings and the outfit and the lipstick and people will be like okay she's here I can drop the language of whatever show or whatever history and people will be like all right she belongs so I've already passed so many little tests to get in to get the stuff that I need and now I'm like there's new tests there's new things. Right. This isn't fun. Right. And yeah. I've spent so much time. And now if I put on my earrings and my lipstick, it doesn't do me anything. It gives me no, <laughs> no purpose, no good. I'm right. so whiny right. today. Sorry. Guys. Well, and it, <laughs> well, that, I felt like you were just getting into character. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's, there's an interesting element to that too, because the, the tests that you're talking about being in place for one of these in-person events, even if you aren't able to pass them, you can see the benefits very clearly. Like you can see the VIP room that you can't get into and you're like, shit, that looks great. I would love to be in there. Or, it's never that great. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's never that great. No, I mean that's the big secret to it. You get to the other side, and you're like, bad. This, no. this is it. This is what I know, we're doing someone's always time? smoking, and there shouldn't be. And it's like, uh, <laughs> it's always someone people. really loud on the phone, like making it seem like they're super important. You're like, please go away. My feet hurt. Yeah. Like I just need, to, <laughs> like just go away. Always greener on the other side of the fence, on the other side of the VIP barrier. Totally. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's all the same overpriced stuff, just in a slightly better decorated space. Yeah, I think quicker as a maker, it's really sad. Like, if I like put away the researcher hat, then I just as a maker, if I was one of the selected artists at a fair, and I go in to go and see how many people are able to access to see, cause that's the point, right? Like you want people to be able to see your work, whether it's being pushed or not by the gallerist. And then I'm hearing that it takes about 500 steps. I mean, how is that? How does that help me as a maker? How yeah. is that like, fine. I mean, I suppose it's like, I, I can say that this is on my CV that I was in this, fair in like 
2020. But then it's like the age old question. It's like, but no one can see it. Mm-hmm. So that, that's awful. You know, because like you want, you obviously you want like someone to buy your work, but like, you know, if you can't even get someone to buy, well, like, well, can't potential buyers like see it? It's not like as if I go into the fitness app and I'm just, you know, I'm going to click on because I really want to work on my abs today. I'm like, you look like you've got amazing workouts that's going to shred me. So I'm going to go and do it. It's like, it's not that. And it's like, it's so hard. Like the, the user experiences, oh my God, a collector, a potential buyer, like it's not even called a collector, a potential buyer has now gone in and they, you know, like randomly are able to click into your gallery and then potentially see your work, but then they can't even inquire. So as a maker, that like hurts my feelings because yeah, I've right. spent so much time making this. Do you and, think, mm-hmm. sorry, do you think though that like makers, because this is always something I've wondered on the other end, is that these hurdles and obstacles that are built for a buyer or potential collector to get them, they've always been in place. But do you think that because they're more, it's like so much more obvious because everything's online and it's not so ephemeral and social and like, you know, a snotty tone or a dismissive nod or an excuse, Oh, I'll be right back. And then you're just like ditched. It's like, that's not so concrete on paper. Like those hurdles or like not wearing the right shoes or the right, thing but now through the online thing so they're so concrete and it's almost like it's just it's almost like tacky that it's like oh gosh like we're making it like this because it's when it's more subtle it's so it's it's harder to have as an as a maker I would think to be like well you're not trying to sell anything I saw you give that person a weird look and it's like you can't really define the lack of access or like the weird backroom deals that are happening between a buyer in a gallery but when it's so blatantly prohibitive because you have to log in or do a password or do this and then inquire and all of these things where it's like wait a second like what are you guys doing to help get my work out there do you think that makes it a little bit even harder now because it's so you know concretely obvious on your computer screen I think it goes back to the question of does that mean that my work has to be um, computer friendly. Mm. Does it have to be screen friendly? And again, as somebody who makes site specific installations, like that's really helpful. You know, like I know I love making installations, but I know that I'm never going to be at the top of the food chain. So fine, whatever. I accept this. But does that mean that for the foreseeable future, either you have to have a friend who's an amazing photographer or your work, your studio practice has to completely shift. And, you know, it's the conversation. It's like, well, what drives the market? It's what, like, is it the supplies? Is it the demand? Is, what is it? But if my work is really difficult to go and photograph because of nuances and I'm hoping that my gallery will push my work, but then it's impossible for someone to inquire and then my images don't look that great because they don't translate. So where does that put me? Like I'm, I'm literally in a hole at that. And it's already a really big hole from like art school to the art world and having that representation. You already think that you've got to win and you're not, you know, like fallen into the moat. Like you've actually got somewhere. Maybe you're like treading. So like for me as the maker, it just, it's, I mean, it's frustrating to be a maker anyway. And then it's almost like, Now I have new problems. Like there were problems that we all knew that we talked about at, in art school, like there was the implicit rules and then there are the explicit rules. And then now it's like, bam, it's like new rules. (laughs) It's like the computer rules. And you're like, oh, so like, 
I don't even know what to do at that point. You know, like how is someone supposed to experience my work at that point? So, so the limitations and this is all that I can say that it just becomes the limitations of what, what the technology, but this might just be the case for quite a long time because the market is going to shift. And yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I, please finish your thought. No, that's basically it. It's going to shift. So does that mean that my studio practice and as somebody who advocates for art students to go and explain to them what it means to get into the industry and early career artists, it's just like, I'm not saying that you have to change your studio practice because please don't do that. But at the same time, you need to be aware that these structures and limitations are real. And that could be just the way that we play the game moving forward now. Yeah, it's, it's tough in this conversation because obviously the, the most salient question at this point is, okay, in a social distancing situation, how do I make work that people connect to? And hopefully buy, but ultimately you're not necessarily talking about sales. You're just saying, I want people to be able to see this. I want them to be able to experience it as I intended it. I want them to be able to get out of the work what I put into it. And one of the tensions that I think this whole lockdown period has really made clear is that the only work that really looks good on a screen is the stuff that was intended from the beginning to be displayed on a screen. Mm-hmm. Like that's just the reality of it. And so if your work just doesn't fit into that box, you've got a big problem right now. And I, I wish everybody who was listening to this podcast could see the reaction shots on Erica's <laughs> face right now. Just- <laughs> it's a real sad face emoji over here. <laughs> so so i mean that's that but that's also a, like eventually we're we're not going to be in this forever Mm-mm. and so when things can shift back more towards the way that they were and i tend to believe that they will i mean everybody who's saying like oh this is gonna there was this there's this tweet that i saw yesterday from uh, walter kern who used to be a journalist, became a, uh, started writing books. Um, he's the guy who wrote Up in the Air, if either of you saw the, the George Clooney, Anna Kendrick movie from a few years ago. Yeah, he's actually, he's really interesting. Um, but he, he tweeted something to the effect of, like, as a magazine writer for many, many years, I can't count the number of pieces that I wrote and my colleagues wrote that more or less ended with some version of, and maybe it'll be X or maybe it'll be Y, but either way, things will never go back to the way that they were. And then over and over and over again, I watched them go back to the way that they were. And I tend to believe that that's going to be what, what happens. Yeah. It's like, every, and I'm not going to say that the, the market or the art world or the way that we do things isn't going to change in some ways. I, I do think that it will, but the idea that we're never going to have art fairs again, or people are never going to get on an international flight to go to a biennial. I just, I don't buy that. I, I think that there's going to be a point. I don't know when it's going to be. I don't know, but like, our imagination tends to be really impoverished when it comes to these kinds of questions, I think. And if there's a vaccine in a year, I can't tell, like even just talking to some people that I know who are just real junkies for this stuff, they're like, Oh my God, the thought of going to a gallery right now is so like, Oh my God, the things that they would do to get into a gallery opening right at this second are terrifying to me almost like (laughs) well there's two things about that is i think that there was a economist article about like how quickly the economy thought like forgot about the 1918 flu uh epidemic Mm -hmm. and just like how quickly things went back to i mean granted there was a world war happening so it was like 
other things happening, but also like everything's always happening, you know? So like, who knows, like fucking 2020, man, like fuck, like who knows what 2021 is going to bring. Right. But that'll make us forget about this and be like, Oh, remember when it was only COVID? Right. (laughs) It was so cute. Um, But there's also to me, I feel like there's the, it'll be an interesting pendulum swing because I think the art world's very, and I mean, a lot of trends are, is like how quickly things fluctuate to like the exact opposite of like, you know, abstract expressionism to like minimalism, you know, things like that, where I think that after, once we are out, people are going to be kind of sick of photographs and things that digitally translate really well. And they're going to be mm-hmm. looking for these like esoteric experiences the same way people are like dying to get back into galleries or museums or to experience something that's like new. And I think that's when like installations and like all of these kind of things are going to be like really in demand. And then it won't be long before we like the pendulum stops kind of swinging and we get back to like where we are. Cause I feel like we're in this very, far digital thing and then we're going to get really out of the digital because we'll be so desperate for new and then it'll because we were already on a digital push people Zwerner had a digital platform before artsy's been around for a while it's not like this wasn't a the train was already going in this direction it just like we got real shoved really quick and it'll you know it's never going to like be derailed that was a lazy metaphor sorry guys no but i think at the same time though saying that i mean like right before um the digital i think much of the digital comes down to the photographs that are taken for instagram isn't it yeah so i mean kusama is probably what the most topical exhibition there is a reason why people were queuing for it non-stop and why the show was extended and those types of experiences I think that people were gravitating towards it whether it's because of the Instagram shot or whatever I mean I will always have a very soft spot for Kusama she was the first person artist that I was suggested to go look at her infinity rooms this is like way before like this even exploded this was in like 2006 that one of my teachers was like you want to make installations you should probably know a few people kasama's infinity rooms is one of them and it it was it was incredible because you know like when you're looking at it in a photograph you couldn't figure out how it was made and they were like oh there's Mm -hmm. a glass ceiling and you're like oh that's so what huh um but there is this like huge surge of interest in the experience because people want to be able to quote unquote participate in really like getting that one shot isn't it um and so people were queuing left and right for that and whether it's for the Olaf or Eliasson at the Tate Modern or whether it's for a Kusama for the Infinity Room or for whatever it is so much of that experience was literally like butt up against what happened with COVID and then COVID happened and there's a big shutdown and now like we're into this digital scenario because that's like basically what we can have to see on a screen. And it's it's interesting to think that if it is a pendulum swing, to, it's like, would it be back into this like crazy experience thing? Would it be something else? Like maybe it's performance art. I don't, you know, like, I don't know. Like it might be performance. Performance has its time place value no it, it, it's true and like that's that's something that my my colleague at Arnett ben davis has talked about this a little bit i don't know how much he's written about it but I've, I've had conversations with him about it where one of the other things that he's really noticed is that it turns out that the the online art experiences that people are most drawn to are they there's still ones that have some kind of social element to them there's still some kind of event quality for instance the only I, this probably makes me a bad art world person but i'll <gasps> be honest with you the only work or online exhibition or whatever that i've looked at purely for my own pleasure or curiosity since this thing started was a screening that the Whitney did of Alex DeCorte's Rubber Pencil Devil on a oh, Friday night yeah. a few weeks ago because it was one night only. They were starting it at 7 p.m. 
and it was just going to run. And when it was over with, it's not coming back. And so that was appointment viewing. It was like, and appointment viewing is a thing that we used to have all the time when TV didn't have DVR yet. Yeah. I mean, the people would literally all sit around. It's, it's kind of amazing to think about. And there's still things that will crop up every once in a while where this will happen. But yeah, the idea that you're going to have a, a mass of people who are all going to tune into the same thing at the same time, all be experiencing it at once is still a draw, even in this moment. And so I think that probably ends up manifesting very differently once the idea of going outside in large groups again is a thing that can happen. But I don't, maybe there will be some kind of, it may have a longer tail online. Uh, I think that maybe people learn something from it and maybe that'll end up changing the, the way that people think about what they want to make and how they want to exhibit it and, and market it, frankly, and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. It's, it's really hard to tell, but I do think that if nothing else, this whole, the whole pandemic has really made clear to me. And I think to a lot of other people, just how much of a necessity it is for humans to be in the same space together and experience the same things together. And I don't think that's going to go away. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's also, that just shows just like anecdotally with like all of the people who are doing like their Zoom party cocktail hours and their Netflix viewing all together at once. It's just, we, we crave that connection that like, yeah, totally. you know, that deep, that human connection. That's like really so ephemeral, but like it's, it's real and we, we miss it when we don't have it. And we try to, you know, that's why we're recording this podcast with video so I can see you guys' faces, <laughs> even though no one's going to see this. But. Well, there we, there we go again with the VIP entrance or VIP access. Our VIP is three people right now, guys. It's very, so very. Explosive. I don't know. I hope that maybe, maybe when we're all let out, that we're all going to go to the spiral jetty or we'll go to the sun tunnel uh, or we'll yes. look at. You know, like the lightning rods, basically. It's like, this tells you what I adore, but... Storm Terrell's maybe, crater. Maybe that's what... Yeah, we're all going to go to the crater for sure. Um, but maybe that's what's going to happen. It's like, who knows? Yeah. You could have a big party at the sun tunnels. Can you imagine? Like, that could be... <laughs> I would die. I'd nice. love to. Oh man! Well, no, you're not supposed to die, Alexis. That's the oh, whole no. point of us oh, being right. able to go. Oh, that's right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Together. I would live for that, guys. Oh, I'm excited about that. like what other like new vernacular is going to come out and change from this. Also, <laughs> there's so many things, guys. So many things. Um, I think this is where we say goodbye. But Tim, thank you so much. It has been I'm so yeah, nice. Your work. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. I love reading your Monday, every Monday. I'm just like, let's see what he talks about this week. <laughs> I know, it's the best. <laughs> that, that's funny because it's, it's almost the same. I see it from the other side where it'll get towards the end of the week. I'll be like, shit, what am I going to write about this week? <laughs> <laughs> no idea. <laughs> no, but every Monday. So and then good. I'll see the topic and I was like, Oh, yeah. so clever. Every time. Let's read about well, this. Thank you. Thanks. I, no, I, I seriously, I'm just like, oh, your work. I, because it's, it's a little bit different. You know, there's, there is transparency in it. And there is, as one may think, that there is a bit of a lack of transparency in this industry. So, you know, I, I really appreciate the things that you write about. It's very well, yeah, that, thank you. Thank you. No, I mean, that, that means a lot to me. And it, it's... I, I am guilty of a lot of things, but I think in general, it's, it's pretty easy to see where I'm coming from when I write what I write, like, at least like, you know what I'm thinking about uh, and how I'm thinking about it. It might be wrong in a lot of cases, I'm sure it is, but it's, I, I think it is, uh, hopefully it is, it is transparent, it does come across as my opinion and something that even if you don't agree with me, at least I've done the work. Like, I've done the work. I can promise you that much. You might not like the conclusion that I come to, but I've certainly put thought into it. So that's, that's kind of all I've got. 
So well, it's important though. to know what other people are thinking. You can't just live in clearly as COVID has made it clear. We can't just live in our own thoughts alone. We can, but it gets really ugly really fast. It does. Real, real, real quick. Real quick. Um, yeah. Tim, tell our listeners where they can find you. So uh, they can find me if they want to read my work. The best place is on Artnet News, which where I'm the, the art business editor. My weekly column, The Gray Market, comes out every Monday morning. And if they want to find me online, they can find, do that on Twitter and on Instagram at the gray market. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. I can never remember. Cause like, I don't have this, I couldn't get just the gray market without any kind of separation. So there's on one of the platforms, the gray has a, has a hyphen in between and the other, it has an underscore in between the gray and market. I can't keep track of which of which, which is which, but like search the gray market, you'll find it. I'll find out and I'll put it in our little blurby so you guys can uh, you're click the best through. Alexis. Well, you know, just doing that real sexy <laughs> admin on the back end. I love it. Make for easy communication and good editing. Until next week, I am Alexis Hyde. You can find me at alexishyde.com or hide or die, various places. H Y D as in David, E or die. And as for me, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is to practice a practice spelt T-O-P-R-A-C-T-I-S-E-A-P-R-A-C-T-I-C-E. Next week, we speak to Ellen Zhuang. She works in business development at Ten Chancery Lane Gallery in Hong Kong, which seems like a really good person to talk to since we're going to be talking about networking. Um, so that is our week. Check in next week and we'll have a whole new topic and new herd and bread. And thank you so much, Tim. Thank you so much, Erica. And until next time. Bye.